0: Welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I am your host Gupta, and our guest today is Junaid Wahidna, the founder and CEO of Wahid. Wahid is an ethical and values-driven digital investment platform structured in accordance with established Islamic principles and standards. Junaid, a native of India, was educated in Dubai and he holds a masters of science degree in industrial engineering and operations research from columbia university along with several certifications in accounting and finance including a cma a caia and cdim prior to founding Wahid, Junet spent several years working on wall street join us as we explore what is riba and halal investing structuring etfs that are compliant with islamic principles the launch of Wahed's physical bank branch and a gold Bank debit card, Junaid's decision to expand globally early on, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Junaid, good morning. Hi Tarang. How are you and where are you calling in from? I'm, I'm in London, cold, freezing London. <laughs> <laughs> well, London's a nice city though. I was there in December and I really enjoyed being there.
1: Yeah, you, you know, because we have a global business like Malaysia all the way to California, it makes a lot of sense for me. So my hours aren't as bad as they would have been if I was anywhere else.
0: Agreed. All right, diving in. For our listeners who may not know, could you give you an overview of your career and how you got started in fintech?
1: Absolutely. So my uh, career was, was pretty short before I started. Um, even today, I'm 29. So I set up the company when I was 23 in New York so I'll give you a quick background of myself as well. I, uh, I'm Indian, grew up in Dubai, went to New York uh, to do my master's at Columbia um, and then I stayed there working in merchant banking um, until I set up uh, Wahid um, which is the company you know that, that we've grown over the years. and um, so yeah very finance heavy um, although my master's degree was uh, in industrial engineering so it was a bit more quantitative. Um, but I didn't want to become a quant, right? So I just uh, went more into front office, and then uh, yeah,
0: set, set up this business and never looked back. So let's talk about Wahid and the inspiration behind it. What inspired you to start it?
1: Um, so I come from a practicing Muslim background, and what that means for the listeners who who aren't very familiar w- with it is we have a specific nuance when it comes to money, and that is we're not allowed to. Um, be exposed to interest in any way, shape, or form. Um, so th- the main, I would say, issue that the Muslim community faces is how do we avoid using consumer banks? Because you need it for your everyday life. You have a current account, savings account, um, you need to you know, collect your salary somewhere. And uh, so we set up Wahid to solve that problem of where does the Muslim community keep their money other than the traditional bank account, right? Which was the norm. Um, Because, uh, again, for the investment options, usually, and this is like seven, eight years ago, right? Um, There weren't many options. Fractional trading had just started in the States. So if you needed to have a diversified portfolio, you needed to be wealthy. Um, And then, uh, you know, you had more retail options. But for the Muslim community, there was still nothing without interest, exposure or debt, You know, as an asset class, because, of course, uh, fixed income is a key component of, of, uh, you know, portfolio theory and and it's very hard to create portfolios without it. So we set up Wahid to solve that uh, problem so that the retail consumer who's a practicing Muslim can keep their savings somewhere where they're not exposed to interest, where they're not exposed to anything deemed impermissible in our faith. Um, And it's you could say a form of SRI investing uh, because we're not, uh, you know, we screen our portfolios for tobacco companies, alcohol companies, pornography companies, um, gambling companies, right? So it's it's quite um, ethical to to a certain extent, and uh, uh, so yeah, that's uh, how we set up or what we set out to solve. We built a tech-based platform. You know, it was it was a website initially as a prototype. Got the SEC approval, launched in the states, and what we learned very very quickly is it was more of a need than a want and people would be going on google and typing in where can i keep my money away from interest where can i keep my money away from riba and, and riba is the arabic term loosely translating interest and uh, there's nothing right except for us the so wahid would come up they go on our website open an account and just send us money uh, so we had in the first three months you know like thousands of clients from all 50 states And this is where it's very interesting. We had clients from Hawaii, from Alaska, from the craziest places, because today the Muslim population is very large and growing rapidly, right? So you have a a really large geographic spread. And of course, there's no, you know, Islamic institutions that are mainstream yet or available to most people, especially in the financial services space. So that was a problem. And then we realized, you know what, there's only like a few million Muslims in America. There's two billion in the world. Everyone has the same problem. 50 million Muslims in Europe. So we need to make this a global play. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's how it's set up. And then we made a whole global strategy and went to execute it.
0: So let's dive deeper into that. Now that you don't charge interest or basically give interest, how does Wahid earn revenue? And, you know, do you have any competitors providing the service as well?
1: Right. So, you know, wealth management um, in its core is a fee-based business right? So we charge percents on AUM, let's say 50 bips on AUM for argument's sake. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not uh, the interest, right? So, so when I say interest, it's uh, not uh, like transaction fees. It's, it's not a fee. It's um, a lending-based interest. So it's mainly applied to lending products or, or anything to do with loans because we believe it creates an equality, um, one of the reasons why it's, it's forbidden in our religion. Now, I'll give you an example, right? Let's say you're a big business or, or ultra-high net worth and you want a loan. You can go borrow from the Swiss banks at a very low interest rate, right? I mean, now it's increasing, but let's say, for argument's sake, 2% a year, you can leverage up your portfolio, of your private banking portfolio. But if you are living month-to-month month and you're higher risk uh, as a client, uh, you're going to have to have credit card debt, which can go as high as some, you know, 40% a year. Uh, and so the cost of capital as a consumer is actually spread depending on how rich or poor you are. So the rich get richer, poor get poorer, and that just keeps getting worse. Uh, and and what's very interesting is today, you know, the economics we learned in school aren't very applicable. Um, we, we learned there's this fractional reserve ratios in banks and they lend out a percent of deposits. That's not applicable today. Um, today, you, you have banks that create money supply by giving out a loan. So the moment they give that loan, whether it's a mortgage or credit card debt, that's the creation of money. Um, so if you think about it, money entering the system, whether it's you know, COVID loans or, or, or you know, uh, just uh, easing by, by this debt crisis, um, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The more money supply, the more the inequality creation. And we are not allowed to be part of that system. So when I say interest, I mean any debt-related product um, that is lending for profit in in any way, shape, or form. So the fees are simple and the same.
0: Wahid also launched three ETFs, right? What was the process of putting together halal ETFs that would still be profitable or give a good return?
1: So, you know, um, an uh, ETF, right, an exchange-traded fund, it's it's just a fund listed on a stock exchange. There's really nothing complicated about it. In fact, I would argue it's easier because most ETFs are passive, so you sign up with the index provider and then you really don't have to use your brains. You don't need active portfolio manager and it just runs on autopilot. Um, so we listed our ETF because we wanted an efficient diversified uh, tool or, or product for investing our clients' portfolios because otherwise we didn't have many options. We aggregate all the you know Muslim communities' money and we have to invest and you don't have any diversified products to invest in. So we had to create them. You only had a handful of mutual funds Charging unbelievably high uh, fees just because they saw the Muslim community or or the Islamic finance space uh, as a you know economic inefficiency, so to speak, so they could charge higher because they have stickier money and stickier clientele. We wanted to fix that, so we listed these funds. The first one we listed on the Nasdaq, the ticker is HLAL, um, and it was a U.S. equities ETF. Uh, it's very successful, um, and in terms of the you know revenue model, it's very straightforward. You have a uh, you know, tiny fee, bips on the dollar, and then you have a couple of fixed costs. And as soon as you pass that breakeven AUM, it's usually some $30 million for us at the breakeven AUM. Uh, you're just printing money after that. Like it, it's a very profitable business and minimal, minimal work and upkeep because it's a, a passive uh, portfolio, right? So... That's, uh, it makes a lot of sense for us. It's a whole different strategy, uh, is like funds. In fact, we don't have a fund or institutional sales team. So all the AUM on our funds, and it's considered very successful. I, I believe our HLAL ETF is the largest Islamic ETF, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we um, have never gone on a roadshow for it. We've never sold it institutionally, and, and we probably should. But our business as Wahid is focused on retail because we want to solve this riba problem for, for the you know, practicing Muslim. Um, and ETF was more. Um, it was. It just came about naturally because we had to invest our money somewhere, and we had to solve for that piece. It wasn't actually part of an institutional sales business plan or anything of that sort.
0: Another aspect that I found super interesting was that Wahed has chosen athletes like Paul Pogba and Habib and his team as as brand ambassadors. Why did you decide to pick athletes over other maybe conventional influencers?
1: So we. Happened to very naturally meet um, both Paul Pogba and Habib through introductions that were very warm and friendly. So it was um, just circumstantial in one po- part, and then the second part is they are leading influencers who are known to be, you know, practicing Muslims and ethical. Um, and it's very rare you find an in, like a A list influencer who. People can respect uh, their credibility, right? They, they, a lot of influencers, unfortunately, they have good, they have bad, right? There's always that um, political nuances that come with them. But uh, Habib and Pogba are lovely people. They're very mission-driven. They care about what we're doing. They care about you know, the, the cause of inequality that we're trying to solve for. Uh, and they're very invested uh, into the business. In fact, literally, you know, Pogba invested even now into our Series B round. So it's just the opposite. Usually you pay influencers, but they're, they're investing in the business. So we got very lucky to come across uh, both of these gentlemen and have them be part uh, of our business.
0: Also, had just launched a physical bank branch in London and also a gold black debit card. Tell us more about that.
1: Right. Um, so two two separate things. One, the, the branch, um, which launches tomorrow, by the way, Um, is you would say counterintuitive, right? Digital fintech company, why are you launching a branch? doesn't make economic sense. Everyone's shutting them down. Um, But the reason we launched a branch in in London, by the way, in the UK, is because we take decisions um, based on all the data we collect, right? And our marketing team did a lot of surveys on on the UK community specifically, which is very different, by the way, to other countries. Uh, There's nuances within the Muslim community in the UK. And they had... um, trust issues when it comes to money for, for many different reasons. One is because of the socioeconomic background of the Muslim community in the UK, highly immigrant population. But unlike America, they're not um, very, very educated or, or skilled in their background. So now it's, it's just a different immigration system. And so, you know, lower financial literacy, less uh, trust in the system and so on and so forth. So the marketing results told us that there needs to be some physical presence, for trust and credibility. So unlike other banks where they open branches for actual business and they have their own little P&L book, for us it's more of a branding and credibility play, saying, look, we are here physically, you can come meet us, a full transparency. Um, and it's, especially now with the whole FinTech industry, unfortunately losing trust every day, right? With, with all of these issues, with the crypto space and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it's very valuable to us, for us to have that physical presence um, and be very within reach, with our, our client and uh, consumer base. So so that's the reasoning for the branch. Now, do we have a big branch strategy where we go and open 50 branches? No, we absolutely do not. We want to have these flagship branches uh, just to push out that trust and credibility element. Now, the gold-backed debit card is, is a whole different um, <laughs> thing altogether. And, and I'll talk a bit about that. So you know how I mentioned the Problem we are trying to solve for, and we call it the riba problem, is that the Muslim community is forced to be exposed to interest, whether we like it or not, because you have to use a bank account. Um, the, The actual ruling is by Sharia scholars, and this is like from the past hundred years plus, right, that you're not actually allowed to use a bank in any way. So not even a current account, because they are a for-profit interest-based lending institution creating inequality, and we're not, as Muslims, allowed to use it at all. In fact, most Muslims don't even know this. They think, oh, the savings account has interest, I can't use a savings account. But they all keep the money in the current account with no interest. But the truth is, they're all not allowed, um, because it's used for the same thing, right? All, all the money's coming uh, at the end of the day. So um, what we're trying to solve for is, okay, then what do you do? Where do you, ke- you keep your money? Where do you take your salary? How do you live? How do you transact? Um, and the solution for that is actually going back in time. Um, you keep it all in assets. So, you know, you, you go back hundreds of years or maybe a thousand years and you, you would have a custodian of money. Right. So you keep all your gold in your armory uh, with the custodian and they keep it safe. They protect it and they charge a fee for it. And you go to the totally other side of town uh, and then you will have the lending, uh, the lenders right and the lending institutions. Uh, and along the road in Venice, uh, you know, both of them are mixed and, and banks were formed and the custodians started giving out loans. And and that's a bank. So we're kind of going back in time saying, look, we don't ever want to lend. Uh, we just want to be custodians of money, custodians of wealth, and we'll keep all the money and assets and we charge a fee for it. It's very, very simple. If you want a loan, you can go somewhere else. You can go to a lending institution. You can go to a bank. Um, so our solution to the RIBA problem is actually making... Investments and, and, and custody so efficient and so liquid that you can actually transact with it. And the debit card is one of the pieces to that solution. So today, as a regulated uh, you know, financial institution, we already keep people's money all in assets, you know, different portfolios, REITs. Uh, one of the securities we use is this physical gold, the ETC, listed on the London Stock Exchange, and they actually custody their gold at the Royal Mint, right of the United Kingdom. So, in in fact, it has a very unique nuance, this product, where you can go and claim your physical gold. So, you can fill out some forms, pass the AML checks, and they'll send the gold to you from the physical, you know, from the royal mint. Um, And and that gives this huge amount of trust and credibility. And that is our, uh, you know, equivalent to the quote unquote current account. So, you move your money into the Wahid account, it's kept in physical gold, and then you have all your savings options in the different assets and the portfolios. And whenever you transact your card, uh, we liquidate this gold security, the physical gold security, and that's what you're spending out of. So that's what we mean by you know, the gold-backed debit card, so to speak. So you get a bank account number, you have a debit card, you can make transfers, but your money is never kept in fiat currency because whether you like it or not, if it is, it's kept at a custodial bank and it's commingled and used somehow, some shape, way, shape or form in the interest-based lending system. Um, So, yeah, simple solution, but also a very smart solution. Because if you think about it, what does an ultra-high net worth do, right? They keep all their money in assets. If you go, you have an account with JP Morgan or Safra Saracen, you have $50 million. They'd never keep all your money in cash. That's silly. It's eroding over time. They'd, They'd have a diversified portfolio. They'd keep it in assets. And we're allowing the exact same thing for the common consumer, for the common man. We're screening it, making sure it's not kept anywhere unethical. It's never lent out. Even a lot of brokers and custodians today, they lend security. So we don't do that. Um, So it's made specifically to solve this interest problem. And what's also really interesting, Tarang, is that this problem isn't only for the Muslim community. There has been the same ethics when it comes to money and wealth in the Christian community, in the the Jewish community, in the Buddhist community. In fact, it's very common amongst different faiths that interest-based lending has always been frowned upon. But there's really never been a solution. So today with technology and with the infrastructure that exists, there finally is a fighting chance to create this alternative ecosystem that is as credible, as safe, if not safer, in my opinion, um, and uh, to live your life and, and transact with everything without there being a cost or inefficiency um, for not using a bank or a
0: bank account. How do you account for the change in price or value of gold? Like, because unlike like, fiat currency, it does move up and down in value, correct?
1: Absolutely. And and very good question. So that was one of the biggest challenges we faced from a marketing standpoint, not really an economic standpoint. And let me tell you why. So firstly, you know, obviously different countries have different currencies, right? We don't see this because we measure everything in our local currency, but everything fluctuates. Even currencies fluctuate. They have pairs. In fact, FX fluctuates probably, you know, has one of the highest volatilities. Um, So, One of the things is psychological. We're measuring everything in the pound, let's say here in the UK. If we start measuring everything to gold, you have 10 grams of gold and everything else is moving. Gold is staying the same. So one piece is psychological. Now, of course, it's prudent to match your assets with your liabilities, right? Your your cash flow matching. So if you're spending in pound, you should be also (laughs) keeping your money in pound type of thing. So we tell clients very clearly, we have a suitability when you open an account that, look. if you're living month to month, if you don't have three months of savings, this is not for you. Because if the gold fluctuates, it goes down a couple of percent, you can't pay a rent. Uh, that's not a good place to be. Now, over time, of course, all assets go up in value, right? And, and that's not because assets are productive. Gold isn't really productive, so to speak. But it's because fiat currency keeps being devalued with, with money supply increase and inflation and so on and so forth, right? Um, so in the long term, we're not worried right at all. For short-term volatility, absolutely. That's our job to screen clients, educate them, be very transparent with the messaging, make sure they're suitable for the product. Um, And and that's how we're taking care of that.
0: So I think a lot of listeners might not remember, but Vahe's chief product officer was on the podcast about two years ago. Talk to us about what has changed since then and what your vision is for the next five years. Okay. So we have
1: like a very long-term game plan. Okay. It's, it's a very unique business in that sense. Usually, you know, fintech companies have VC investors and they have five-year horizons and it's like a pump in, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to say this negatively, but it's a very short, short-sighted kind of approach to growing really fast. Um, but with Wahed, we have very long-term shareholders and we've always insisted on that. So if you look at our cap table, it's mainly family offices, quasi-sovereigns. Everyone has to sign on to the fact that this is a very long-term goal and mission Uh, that we're trying to solve for and it's not going to happen overnight right so we have stages and and there's like in the super long term let's say roughly three stages we're just about done with stage one okay stage one is that making the investments you know efficient enough getting all the global regulatory licenses today we have 10 different countries that we're regulated in and we have the bases in um and then step two now which we're entering is more about pushing these products and creating that ecosystem right and that's, in my mind, the hardest and the most challenging piece. So the first part is done, second part is to be done now when we push, you know this, this bank account alternative and many different products that we have planned. Um, and yeah, it's not going to happen overnight. A couple more years. So when Karim was here uh, two years ago, um, he was you know instrumental to creating this initial infrastructure. And uh, now it's, it's just a different phase of the business. It's more growth, more stable. We're in a really good place. Even now with the market volatility, it did not impact us. In this past year, we grew 75% very organically um, because our client base is very long-term. They're very sentimentally attached. We're solving a need, not a want. Our cost of acquisition is a fraction of any other fintech player. And that's just because we don't have to go to a market and say, oh, we're cheaper than this person. We're better than this person. No, we're we're the only solution you have. And the Muslim community is very large, right? So we have a huge or organic traction uh, in, in fact, on average, whatever country we enter, we get 1% of, of the Muslim population as our client just organically, right? We have uh, gone into countries of 30 million Muslims and we're over 300,000 clients organically um, or vast majority organically. So um, yeah, I, I don't think it's easy to summarize that, you know, we, we've done this past two years. We have this going forward two more years, but very roughly speaking, we are in a different stage. We've matured a lot. Um, but yeah, there's it, a lot
0: more to be done. Talking about the market overall. What are some differences you notice between the fintech industry in UK versus the US? <laughs> um,
1: I'd say it's a world apart. Um, there, there's too many nuances to discuss, and some may sound very negative and mean. So I don't know how to phrase it. Um, but but the US just has a completely different culture. It's it's a risk taking culture. People are comfortable trying new things. Um, in Europe, from what I've seen, uh, it's it's much more conservative. People are very wary. There are deep-rooted trust issues. It's 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 a world apart, right? So America is just much quicker um, to get any adoption and try new products out. From we've seen, from what what I've seen, what what we've seen, and honestly, even even regulatory wise, like it's it's just a different culture. Again, I'm I'm trying not to <laughs> say things that may sound mean, but world. So one of the biggest learnings for us actually was coming to the UK because, you know, we started in the US and we thought, oh, UK, similar financial literacy, wealth per capita, English speaking, how hard can it be, right? You just copy paste everything. But it was a rude awakening for us, world apart. And and it was um, exponentially worse for us because the Muslim community, if, if you look at this, you know, their socioeconomic history and background. So again, the the American Muslim community is very wealthy. Doctors, lawyers, engineers, very educated, right? It's a skilled um, population. Um, but in, in the UK, it's, it's almost the polar opposite. Uh, so when we came to the UK, it, it was a world apart. We had to start a fresh blank canvas, you know, new marketing studies, surveys. What works in America does not work in the UK for us. Maybe different for other fintechs dealing with the, the general population, but for us, no comparison.
0: And what are some segments within fintech that you are bullish on or believe that it will drive the industry's growth for the next three to five years?
1: Right. So I'm, I'm a bit biased, right, just because of my ethical and religious beliefs. So I'm very uh, against lending products overall. <laughs> I just don't like that the fintech industry is, is 99% lending products or lenders or people who eventually start lending or want to be lenders. So if you look at most people's business plans, it'll always end up with lending. Whether it's a neo bank or it's BNP, whatever it's 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 ends up. Okay, we're gonna make our money by lending products to the to the end consumer. And in my mind, this is just furthering the debt crisis. It's furthering the cost of living crisis. It's furthering inequality, and it just keeps getting worse. So I I won't say I'm bullish for non lending products, but I personally like and hope that the non lending products. Like the investment products, savings products, products that have a net benefit to society as a whole are going to be very successful. And I hope people start to care about the ethics of finance, because most people, the truth is, most people in the world are not financially literate. And it is our responsibility as entrepreneurs who create these products to keep that in mind. Just because something looks fancy and sounds fancy, but we know there's a detrimental effect on society, we we should really be wary of this and, and keep it in mind.
0: My last segment is about introducing you as a person to our guests, to our listeners. So my first question for you is, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know?
1: I did a lot of skeet shooting. So uh, something most people don't know is is I shoot a lot regularly. And I know living in London is not a normal thing. And it's also extra not normal, you know, for a bearded brown guy to be talking about shooting. But (laughs) I skeet shoot as a hobby and I really enjoy it. So yeah, most people don't know.
0: What was the toughest part of taking Wahed from
1: zero to one? I, I would say the confidence uh, in yourself, right? So you always encounter people who have an opinion. Everyone has an opinion and you cannot let that opinion impact you because as human beings, it really does. So it's it's a very fine line because people are wise. They've gone through experiences and you should take certain things from them and listen to them. But at the same time, if you do, you're never going to do your business because... Uh, there's a reason why no one else has done it, right? And that's because they don't think it's possible. So I think that having that confidence in yourself was absolutely the pivotal point of why it's succeeding or not. If I had listened to everyone, or, or let's say the majority of people, there's no way I would have done half the product. I can't explain to you. Every single person I met, industry experts, professionals said, don't launch the ETF, it's not going to work. There's no way the ETF is going to work. And the ETF is, is our most profitable and successful product today. So, yeah, I, I don't know how to phrase it, but that is something I would really keep in mind. It, it's a fine balance between, you know, taking advice and trusting yourself.
0: London or New York, what's more your vibe?
1: Now London? Okay, so it, it would depend on, on phase of life, but there is no replacement to what I learned and, and, and the work ethic and culture and, and um, just feeling of, you know, working in New York, uh, that that vibe is something different in your 20s. I, I know I'm still in my 20s. I feel like an old man. I'm like 29. But uh, <laughs> now I'm more on the London vibe. I need to take a walk in the park once in a while. <laughs> but in my early 20s, New York for sure was my vibe. And and in fact, I think that's, that's uh, really set um, even our, our culture of the company. You know, it's It's a unique culture of of New York and and I love it. And I I don't think there'd be any other place I would have rather spent my early 20s.
0: What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs, especially those who are in college or just graduated? How do they approach starting something up and building credibility with customers and investors? Right, so I I keep saying this. I don't think
1: someone should be an entrepreneur just for the sake of being an entrepreneur. I think they need to specialize in something and then find a genuine problem they're trying to solve for. I, I think it's really become like, a, a buzzword type of thing to be an entrepreneur, and people just study saying, "I want to be an entrepreneur when I go up." But in my mind, that's not a thing, right? Anyone can be an, a, an entrepreneur. You can be in the most boring business. You can be in physical. You can be a butcher and be an entrepreneur, right? You can like be in a very traditional business and, and have find a problem and find a creative solution. In fact, if if I were you know young and doing this again, I I would go into an industry that's very unique, very physical, and innovate there, because all VCs, the whole you know entrepreneurship space is just focused on the same stuff. But imagine like you know mining or or some something physical, and and then you go and you use your creativity and your education and, and innovating that. For me, that is is something that would take entrepreneurship, being an expert in something nuanced, uh, and then finding a problem that you have to solve not just saying i want to be an entrepreneur going on google and and you know finding something to do
0: my last question is is there any decision in your career that you would like to change
1: no honestly i i've been very lucky and and a lot of decisions i i've you know just happened you know just just happened but uh, i've i've been really really lucky and i'm very very grateful um, for the opportunities I've been given and then how things have just randomly tur- turned out. So there's no conscious decision I've taken which I would change. One, one thing I would maybe reflect on because I don't know if it was the right or wrong decision and, and no one like you can't really know is trying to scale globally the business too quickly versus staying in one country and going deep. And this is a constant debate and everyone will have a different opinion on it. But it is something I still reflect on and, and I still think about that, you know, going wide versus going deep in, into a market. And most people and industry experts say you should go deep, but I don't think we would be where we are today without going wide. I honestly don't. So it, it's something that I definitely think about again.
0: On that note, I'll let you get back to work. It's a Monday. I know you're busy, but thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Taran. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Vought in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Vought in Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta.